Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 5, Episode 3 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. Whereas the transformative potential of mindfulness is in its power to change leadership and culture in society and to help us see that we are much more interconnected and that we benefit from seeing ourselves as interconnected. And that's my aspiration, to see mindfulness as more than that thing with the breathing. (laughs) (laughs) Pay supers, this is the final part of my chat with Yuta. We could have gone on for days, but I'm sure she'll be back. Dr. Yuta Tobias Mortlock is a social psychologist from City University of London, who is also the co-director of the Centre for Excellence in Mindfulness Research. In this episode, Yuta describes more about her published research. The paper is called Extending the Transformative Potential of Mindfulness Through Team Mindfulness Training, Integrating Individual with Collective Mindfulness in a High-Stress Military Setting. And that's in Frontiers in Psychology. And of course, you'll find a link in the show notes. We find out what there is to learn from geese in terms of teamwork and also how the collective mindfulness literature shows that this reliability or resilience in the face of collective stress for an organisation is driven by two things, leadership and culture. We also touch upon the reputational damage to mindfulness caused by the tone-deaf way it can be introduced by some organisations. There's a heck of a lot for your listening pleasure in the next 30 minutes or so, and I've called the episode Lessons from the Scheme which is the name, who knew, for a flock of wild geese or swans in flight, typically in a V-shaped formation. People Soup is an award-winning podcast where we share evidence-based behavioural science in a way that's practical, accessible and fun to help you glow to work a bit more often. Let's just scoot over to the news desk. Reviews are in for part two of my chat with Yuta. On LinkedIn, Clive Carey, a business psychologist, said, What a great listen, Yuta and Ross. Resonated strongly with me, especially the part about mindfulness helping with personal healing. I'm recording a podcast next Friday and may well be referencing you two. Thanks for helping to make my morning. Well, thanks so much to you, Clive. I'm so pleased you found it interesting and useful. And thanks to everyone who listened, rated, shared and reviewed the episode. It's really very much appreciated. But for now, get a brew on and have a listen to part three of my chat with Yuta. Okay, so Yuta, I'd like to dive into a bit more detail around next generation mindfulness and mindfulness beyond meditation, because I know so many people will be curious and excited by what we've already spoken about. It just makes intuitive sense. And I think the thing that really struck me, particularly looking at the military context, I was representing you and your team at a conference And I can't for the life of me remember where it was, but it was a military conference. And I was chatting to a guy who was very senior in the bomb squad. Mm -hmm. And he was talking to me about how they want everyone to have a voice Mm -hmm. in that bomb squad. Because someone who is very junior might have spotted something that no one else has spotted. And he wanted them to be able to say to him, excuse me, I've seen this. This might impact on what we're about to do. And that just sent shivers down my spine that if that person doesn't have a voice, the consequences could be horrendous. And that's really made me more curious about the work you've done with the military. And I know there's a paper you've published recently about team-based mindfulness. So maybe 
that might be a way in or how can we dive deeper? Help, help me to think how we can dive deeper into mm-hmm. this. Thank you. So the innovation here really is nothing more than bringing together a really good, solid, wonderful scholarship on individual mindfulness, helping individuals manage stress better. We have a tick in the box for that. We don't actually know all that much about how mindfulness-based stress reduction helps people perform better. We don't actually have surprisingly little solid evidence on this, but we know that it makes people feel better and manage stress better from a well-being perspective. And so combining that with the equally well-researched but less popularly known scholarship on collective mindfulness. Collective mindfulness is what I mentioned, the dude, Carl Wake at the University of Michigan in the 90s, uh, investigating what makes nuclear submarines, intensive care units, and nuclear power plants function in the face of unanticipated, unexpected pressure reliably. And so he was absolutely researching institutions and organizations like this bomber patrol people where if you make a mistake, it's catastrophic. And why do these operations make really rarely catastrophic mistakes? What do they do to anticipate stress and respond to stress more effectively than the average Joe or your ordinary organization? And he found, surprisingly, lo and behold, organizations that anticipate and respond to stress more reliably, like without losing a, a limb or losing life, tend to work as if they were collectively mindful. And what does that mean? Collectively mindful basically means, right, if we say John Kabat-Zinn's definition of individual mindfulness is paying attention on purpose, non-judgmentally. So replicate that to a collective and what you get is something that looks and sounds a bit like a flock of birds flying through the sky. So a flock of birds, a flock of geese in the autumn flying through the sky are marked by three things. Every one of them aligns their personal direction with the overall direction of the group. So it removes a bit of ego, right? So it's, I subordinate my individual goals to the goals of the corrective. First characteristic. Second characteristic, each goose can initiate a change of direction, right? So everyone contributes. And this is where it becomes relevant to your bomber patrols, right? So it's not just the first one at the front who sets the direction. But if the one in row seven starts to change direction, the others all pay attention to everyone else. This is where it becomes a definition of mindfulness. Paying attention on purpose, non-judgmentally, that means everyone not only contributes and subordinates their individual goals to the overall, but everyone also can change direction if it is the right direction. And everybody exchanges knowledge. So the, the geese, all they talk all the bloody time. So everybody contributes, everybody aligns individual goals to collective, and everybody can initiate a change of direction because nobody is better than thou. And so that means paying attention, not to my internal body sensation, but paying attention to each other, non-judgmentally. That means your voice is just as good as my voice. And on purpose, that means the purpose is the purpose of the collective. It's not the purpose of me individually. And he then found that he categorized collective mindfulness and he called it collective mindfulness. And and I I say this because all I've done is to bring the individual mindfulness literature together with the collective mindfulness literature and started to trial training programs that target collective mindfulness as well as individual mindfulness. And this targeting collective mindfulness is all about 
training groups of people to become committed to anticipate problems as a collective and to become committed to work together to learn how to respond to problems or stress collectively. So these, it's these two big categories of facts. And if you, if you remember what we said earlier, anticipating unexpected problems becomes much easier and flows much better when we become a really good psychologically safe team. And so this is why investing in talking, getting everybody to speak on a routine basis so that when the stuff hits the fan, everybody does speak up. So people's vocal calls are oiled during normal operations so that when it really matters and when they say something, I think we're going in the wrong direction, sir or boss, they are actually trained, they're practiced to speak up. And the others are practiced to listen. That's right. That's right. So we're, we're cultivating these, these skills of heightened noticing or heightened awareness and the way we process that to help us realize different perspectives or check our own assumptions. Hall of mirrors, remember? Hall of mirrors means I reflect back to you what I see, you reflect back to me what I see. That improves the quality of our conversation. It reinforces us having a relationship where I have your back, you have my back, and we actually might learn something. And so the, the training, the next generation mindfulness training, I think is not just about noticing and being silent, mm. noticing by myself, but noticing proactively. And you cannot do this if you don't have a high quality relationship. You know, I can't just blurb out um, that I think you're doing this incorrectly, Ross. You will never listen to me if you have not got ample practice. This is why it's a practice, mindfulness. Ample practice of taking turns ample practice of everyone having a say, ample practice of not hogging the screen space, you know, if you're a loud person, or of speaking up if you are a quiet person in a team. The team mindfulness training is a lot about communicating more, not less, getting to know each other on a personal basis. That means getting to know each other's stress triggers, caring. You can train anybody to care about other people in virtually every context. If you get to know the person, it's very difficult to discount them. And this is what I learned uh, in my work, uh, working with Hutu and, and Tutsi. And of course, bloody hell, post-genocide contexts are hard work. And I'm not saying that just by talking, you can overcome atrocities that are unspeakable. In post-genocide contexts, truth and reconciliation only happens by sharing and by being listened to and by giving people a voice. And so in a much less extreme context, training people to develop high value conversations where they exchange different perspectives is the recipe to anticipate stress being handled collectively. And then when stress happens, to encourage people to talk more, not less. I love the way you're cultivating and encouraging behavioral rehearsal mm -hmm. before times get yeah, tough. Yeah, that's right. Because it's not the time when you're in the middle of battle to start practicing these skills. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. This practice, it's right. You cannot learn to be mindful when the bullets are flying, hopefully just figuratively. You have to train behavior change. And this is why my training in behavior change and in, in understanding and analyzing behavior is helpful for mindfulness training. But I have had a lot of pushback from people who say, you know, so maybe it's just psychological safety training. Maybe it's just, you know, you're just doing team building. Absolutely, we are doing team building. But let's remind ourselves why anybody's interested in mindfulness. We're doing team building, not because we want to have higher performance, not because we want to get the, you know, millimeter gain and become the Olympic medalist. 
we're not doing this because we want to turn people into high performance machines. We're doing this because we're concerned about people's suffering and people's stress. And so mindfulness training at any level in organizations is in the interest of managing stress more effectively in getting people to understand the cause of suffering and to find transformative capacity to overcome suffering. Suffering is just an old-fashioned, maybe slightly spiritually tinted word for the, the common day experience of me saying I'm stressed out of my mind. So these practices are in the interest of people to become more resilient in the face of stress. And nowadays, in a post-pandemic and post-Trumpian and post-Brexit world, we all know what it feels like to have dramatic stress being thrown at us from the left field, from out of the blue. And so I think more people are motivated to become ready to manage stress more effectively, more strategically, more collectively. Just makes sense, doesn't it, logically? And, and I find, oh gosh, I find that, that leaders sometimes feel very isolated. Yeah. They feel like they have the weight of this organization on their shoulders. It's all their responsibility. And they feel reluctant to express any form of vulnerability or seek support or say how they're feeling. And often they might do that to avenues outside of their organization. And sometimes yeah. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Some of that's right. But to gradually start to, to share it and introduce it to the the senior team, for example, I think it helps them take those different perceptual positions, realize the, the long term and the short term. It creates more rounded leaders and human beings who are more resilient and, and suffer less. It's very true. And, you know, the collective mindfulness literature is, is solid. This is solid management science. This is not as popular as relax your body through body scan that has made it into the Daily Mail and into the Cosmopolitan magazine. And that's okay, right? It's easy to understand how a body scan can calm my nervous system down and can relax me. Hence, it's an easy concept to make it into the masses and to get propagated. But that's not the whole story. The collective mindfulness scientific literature tells us that collective mindfulness and this reliability or resilience in the face of collective stress for an organization is driven by leadership and by culture. And we know, and this is why I teach leadership and how I teach leadership, leadership in the 21st century is no longer a man with silver hair and big white teeth and a big jaw standing in front of a group of people who adore him, telling them where to go. Leadership in the 21st century looks and sounds like the 21st century. It comes from unexpected spaces. The leader's job is to eke out knowledge and eke out a morsel of information that gives the group competitive advantage. It doesn't necessarily, and in most cases, it doesn't come from the leader's brain and the leader's farsight, because the leader doesn't have eyes at the back and eyes on the side mm. to see all the perspectives that are relevant for the choices that we have in the 21st century. So necessarily, the leader's job becomes the job of like somebody taming reticent animals to eke out, to get their subordinates to trust them, to get their subordinates to talk to them. It's like, I can tell you something about this. I have three stepchildren. To befriend somebody who may or may not have any interest in trusting or wanting to be your friend. That's the job of a leader, because the leader cannot afford to not 
draw on the whole host of knowledge and the whole host of variable experiences that the group, the team, the collective have, the 19-year-old intern, the 38-year-old mother of three who's just married another man with two other children who knows something about juggling, that the leader with his big American jaw and his you know, fancy suit doesn't understand. So leadership is about eking out information and getting people to trust you so that they share freely what half-baked ideas they might have to get you competitive advantage or to get you to actually survive, let alone being competitive. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think this is the hook that will attract organizations more Mm -hmm. when you start to talk about this is how you can innovate and be creative. Mm -hmm. And it's a totally different style of, of leadership. Yeah than what you might imagine, the big jawed, nice suits, silver mm. gray hair, handsome dude at the top. I've just described you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hilarious. He thinks I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But there's a word that's kind of new to my vocabulary, heedful. Mm, it's funny, isn't it? Isn't that an interesting word? Because... If a leader can be heedful and co-create those conditions with the people they work with, where people can go, hey, what if, or what about, or I don't understand, or I'm nervous about this, I think we've lost track, or you seem to be blind to this, maybe not using language as direct as that, but hopefully maybe Mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. I think in, in safer environments, we don't need to frame things with a million frames anymore where the key message gets lost by the time you've presented it because you've put this golden Rococo frame around mm-hmm. it that people are focusing on the frame and not the content of the message. We're back to, it ain't what you do, it's the way that mm-hmm. you do it. I think that's another thing that, that I'm becoming increasingly excited about. It's interdependence theory. And it, this is just a scientific, you know, like academic. My husband always says, mm. well, that's just academic. So academic is useful, <laughs> but only to a certain extent. But here it is useful. Interdependence theory says we are much more interdependent than we think. Buddhist contemplative traditions are arguing that our illusion of independence is a big cause of our suffering. And so we were talking about leadership and culture driving collective mindfulness. And so if you think about the leader of a collectively mindful organizations, that's a little bit like that a, a goose in that flock of geese, you know? where my own direction is just one versions of directions that we can go to. I align my individual goals with the goals of the collective. I allow others to contribute. I exchange ideas with all sorts of individuals in the organization. And that's a different style of leadership. It's less ego-driven, but much more relaxing because it's not the weight on my shoulders is much less. My job is to coordinate and to bring out knowledge. And that's What brings me to the second topic that drives collective mindfulness, culture. So leadership is only there because leadership is about shaping a new direction, is going into an area there that we haven't kind of gone into. Otherwise, it would be management, managing resources, managing people, managing finances. That's what a manager does. Mm -hmm. A leader shapes a new path and creates a new culture, creates a new normal. And culture is all about the way we do things around here, consciously or unconsciously. And what we want to do is people develop unconscious automatic habits of listening, of contributing, of aligning their own direction 
with the collective direction, because overall that's what makes the organization more resilient and more reliable. And so that then it becomes the culture driving behavior as opposed to a leader having to stand in the, in the front and beating people over the head and saying, this is what you should do. Listen to each other. BS, listen to each other. You can't tell people to listen to each other. You can just get people to practice speaking in turns and taking turns to speak and to listen. And that's why mindfulness, and I come back to Ravi Kadesia's brilliant point, mindfulness in organizations is a metacognitive practice. It's like, this is where the muscle goes. The practice of doing things mindfully. The more you practice, the bigger your arm muscle gets. And the people on the podcast can't see this, but I'm flexing my big biceps here to illustrate how this is, I know, like this is the way to the beach, right? Uh, to, to say the more I practice my physical muscles, the bigger they get, the more I practice this mental capacity to reflect and to check and to notice whether what I'm doing is actually what I want to be doing, the bigger that capacity becomes. I talk a lot with, with leaders about pressing pause, yeah. imagining a big pause button, because we're working at such pace in organizations. And sometimes we equate pace with this is the value, this is the expectation and we're not we're not giving ourselves time to think or even reflect as well we're just on what people would call the treadmill yeah i think that's right but there's something else and this is again i take this from Cadesia's reframing of mindfulness and organizations and that reflects my experience that ravi says you don't really want to press pause unless it makes sense to press pause so mm. let's be mindful about mindfulness. And I am a big fan of slowing down to speed up and, you know, pressing pause and making space for myself. But he says, don't press the pause button unless, you know, there's a need for it. So you want to press pause when you're overworked or when you have a work habit that's not functioning, right? That's fine. But don't shift to, you know, just noticing, you know, the sensations in your body when you're feeling stressed, unless you are actually feeling stressed or unless it's actually useful to notice something that you haven't seen before. And that tense in organizations, you only really want to press the pause button when something has broken down, when something is going wrong. You don't really want people to necessarily do things slower than they normally do it if they're doing them correctly. So you don't want to do analysis paralysis and you don't want to introduce mm. doubt into the way we do things around here unless there's a good reason for it. So just to always pause in the middle of a meeting uh, might actually lose the momentum, right? Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I'm, I'm being a little bit unfair. You and I tend to use the word pause button for work practice, for this tendency for us to do a lot of things for other people and forget that I am also somebody. I also have needs, right? That's what we said at the beginning. So make space for myself carve out a bit of distance between me and all the tasks that I have, that's useful. And I, th I think I think the pause button, sometimes you might pause at the wrong point. It's, it's kind of practicing using the pause button to realize, yeah, yeah is that useful yeah. now? Yeah. Maybe not, move on. Or pressing pause now, because I think something's just happened that I really need to reflect on or pay attention to. Mm -hmm. But I agree, not, not just pausing every moment. And it, it becomes something more for dramatic effect then. Yeah, and that's a, a really, Almost, I, I hesitate to say it, but I, I'm getting a lot of energy from the people that I work with and the people that I train in mindfulness. At, at Cranfield, I still train about 
300 senior government officials in mindfulness through the project leadership program that the cabinet office runs on. So we've now, over the last five, six years, trained well over 2,000 senior government officials in individual and collective mindfulness. And many of them come to Cranfield on this training course as part of their project leader program leadership course. And they go, ha, a day of mindfulness. Let's get ready for eating the raisin, right? Let's get ready to walk and look at the colors of the puddles. And then we talk about what you and I have just talked about. And then there's a bit of a aha moment and a bit of a surprise and a bit of relief, right? Because they're going, okay, maybe I'm not completely wasting my time. Maybe there's something here that could be really relevant. And they say this because much mindfulness training that gets sent to organizations is a little bit like this awful story that my dear friend Mara Gullens, who writes for Mindful Magazine, talked about. She said she was working for an organization that was about to merge with another organization. And everybody was anxious and everybody was stressed out of their mind about what would happen to their jobs, what would happen to their functions. And the company thought they did a really good thing by getting a mindfulness trainer to come in. And they spent a day eating raisins mindfully and looking at the colors of the puddles in order to get ready for the merger. So they had a day of relaxation, but the stress and the suffering that was about to happen because of the merger was completely untouched by that day of mindfulness. The pause and the relaxation did nothing to address the cause of what mindfulness was needed to manage that stress better. Mindfulness, I'm repeating myself, is only useful if it's in the interest of managing stress more effectively. And in workplaces, stress is often social. Because my to-do list is too big is one thing, and I can do something about it. But there's much bigger causes of stress in workplaces. And if we don't shift mindfulness training to address social aspects of stress, people not talking about conflicts of interest openly, people not reflecting back to them what their choices really are, then we have no chance of becoming better at managing stress collectively in organizations. Then mindfulness has no real benefit. Yeah, and I think part of that reputational damage is things like that. We're having a merger. Let's have a day looking at raisins and noticing (laughs) puddles. It's like, for the love of God... And then let's let's be sent back into the f- the roaring fire of the merger, right? You've had a day of mindfulness. Get on with it. <laughs> so frustrating because that day could have been used to use mindfulness to to reflect, anticipate, and respond, and share what's going on in your own mind. But I wonder, could we move on to a takeaway? Is there a takeaway you'd? I mean, I think we've had several already. I think there's the German phrase about you also. I am also that. somebody. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Um, but is there anything else that comes to mind? Well, yes. My big aim, the fire under my belly in my work, is to help people see more of the transformative potential that mindfulness has. And I am with John Kabat-Zinn, who wrote 10, 11 years ago about the fact that MBSR and mindfulness-based stress reduction based on using the anchor to become mindfulness is but one of a possibly infinite number of means to bring mindfulness into this world. And perhaps the the thing that we haven't mentioned that I think is really important is when you read Eastern contemplative traditions, they are highly altruistic in their aspiration. They're very much focused on the interdependence of what I experience with how you experience reality and how that is a little bit lost in the current incarnation of mindfulness. When people think mindfulness, 
they think self-help, whereas the transformative potential of mindfulness is in its power to change leadership and culture in society and to help us see that we are much more interconnected and that we benefit from seeing ourselves as interconnected. And that's my aspiration, to see mindfulness as more than that thing with the breathing. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. Yuta, thanks for joining me on the show. It's truly a joy to hear you speak. You're such a creative thinker and an inspirational force for me. So I'm so grateful for you coming on the show and thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And it's a privilege to know you. It's a privilege to know you. And I could spend hours and hours on podcasts talking to you and about the amazing work that you do. So that's why I'm so glad to spend time with you. Thank you. That's it, P-Supers, the third and final part in the bag. Thanks so much to Yuta for coming on the show and for being such a fascinating and inspirational guest. If you like this episode or the podcast, please could you do three things. Number one, share it with one other person. Number two, subscribe and give us a five-star review, whatever platform you're on. And number three, share the heck out of it on the socials. This will help us reach more people with stuff that could be useful. Next week, I've got a fresh treat for you. It's part one of my chat with Mike Jones, the founder of Better Happy. I love to hear from you, and you can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, you'll find us at peoplesouppod, on Instagram at people.soup, and on Facebook at peoplesouppod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and Alex Engelberg for his vocals. Most of all, dear listener, thanks to you. Look after yourselves, peace supers, and bye for now. The park behind our new house. The informal name for it is the Parque de los Patos, the the duck park. Isn't that interesting? But the, there's also geese mm-hmm. there, and they quite often just fly over us in the V formation, making such chatting noises. It's like lads and lasses, will you pipe down a bit? But it's because they're constantly exchanging information. They're constantly chatting. Hey, what's going on here?